Perhaps it was the science fiction writers who felt the first concrete impact. More and more, these writers felt an opaque wall across the future. They saw that their most diligent extrapolations resulted in the unknowable soon. From the Coming Technological Singularity by Werner Vinge, published in 1993. Hello and welcome to the Western Traditions Podcast. My name is Rob Paxton, and this is the second episode of my ninth series about the history of Western civilization. The second episode, and it may be the last. No, no, I'm not quitting the podcast, not at all, but this episode is the introduction to the technological singularity, a topic which will include subjects such as artificial intelligence, transhumanism, and both utopia and the apocalypse. And inevitably, when anyone discusses things like the singularity or artificial intelligence, they at least entertain the concept of the end of humanity as the ultimate result of technological advancement. Now, I originally conceived the idea of this podcast late in the year 2020 as eight series of episodes about different eras in human and Western history. It was essentially going to be an audio history curriculum. The last and eighth series of episodes was going to cover the contemporary period of our existence, beginning at the end of the 20th century or the beginning of this 21st century. I began to publish episodes for this first series about the ancient world in February of 2021. By mid-November 2022, I had left the ancient world behind and started the second series about ancient Greece. I had just published an episode about the Trojan War, and I had begun to write about the Iliad. And then I heard about ChatGPT3. Now, the concept of the technological singularity was not new to me, nor was artificial intelligence. I have been a sci-fi reader my whole life, after all. But the advent of ChatGPT briefly broke the spell that the ancient Greeks had over me at that time, And I realized that the podcast, which I had been dutifully producing for a year and a half, and which was probably going to require something like 10 to 15 years to complete, I realized that I might never be able to finish it. And not necessarily because I assumed that the robots would come and kill all of us soon. There are a lot of reasons that I might never be able to finish this project. Reasons that have nothing to do with my mortality or the end of civilization. No, the coming singularity could bring this endeavor to an end for a variety of reasons. In the fall of 1991, I was a freshman at the University of Arizona in Tucson. One of my first semester classes was English 103, an honors introductory course for those of us smart enough not to have to take English 101, but not quite so smart as to be able to skip the class altogether. Anyway, part of the curriculum of that class required a student to learn their way around the university library. Now, just saying those words, I get a little distracted. I was an avid reader and an aspiring writer then, and the doors of that university library were like some sort of portal to heaven in those days of my youth. 1.4 million units in that library, a unit being a book, a magazine, a newspaper on microfiche, and so on. 
I know the exact quantity of 1.4 million because I remember that little nugget of information from the course material given me at the beginning of my freshman year. So much to read. The library had four floors and seemingly endless stacks of books. I remember thinking at one point that I wouldn't mind heaven being like that. A big library where I could just wander the stacks and find old books by accident and start reading them. Whenever I got tired, I could just lie down in the aisles with a pillow and a blanket, maybe. Obviously, at that point in my life, I had never had a girlfriend. Anyway, you could not pass the class, this introductory English class at the University of Arizona. You could not pass this class unless you also passed the exam about the university library's card catalog. Now, some of you listening may be wondering, especially if you're younger than, say, 40 years old, you may be asking yourself, just what the hell is a card catalog? Well, you have to remember that this was 1991, some 33 years ago, and there was no widely available internet. In fact, I had never heard of the internet at that point in my life, and neither I nor anyone in my family in 1991 had ever even owned a computer. If you had reminded me of a certain scene in Ferris Bueller's Day Off, a 1986 film where he apparently uses an internet connection to do some of his own shenanigans with the school's records, I would have vaguely understood that the internet had something to do with computers. And it was not like I came from a destitute family. Yes, I was a scholarship student, but my family was not eating at soup kitchens. We had a nice middle-class home in Ahwatukee, a little suburb outside of Phoenix. And scholarships paid for my school, yes, but my parents were paying my rent without driving themselves into poverty. Part of my point here is that in 1991, there were plenty of people in America, the country that put a man on the moon in 1969, there were plenty of citizens in this country who were doing fine financially, but still did not own computers by the 1990s or really know anything about them. And our libraries still had card catalogs. What is a card catalog? Well, at the U of A library, the card catalog was this long, massive wooden structure in the shape of a rectangle, about a, a man's height, as I remember, planted on the first floor of this library, taking up a huge amount of floor space. On either side of this rectangle, there were these little drawers, hundreds, if not thousands of them. I only have memory to rely on, so I, I may exaggerate here a little. The drawers were labeled with alphabetical ranges, something like, say, capital C, lowercase o, to capital C, lowercase u. Inside this drawer, you would find hundreds of 3x5 cards, each labeled with the name of an author whose last name fell into that particular alphabetical range. An author might have several such cards in the drawer, one for each of his books, these appearing in the card file in alphabetical order. So in this particular drawer, I might have found a card for Joseph Conrad in his book, Lord Jim, published in the year 1900. This card would also contain information about the book, directing me to the location of that quote-unquote unit in the library. It might have been on any of the floors. If I couldn't find the name of one of that author's books in the card catalog, it would mean that the book was not available in the library, and I simply would not have access to it at all. Now, as you may have guessed, I passed the card catalog test and the class, but in the fall of 1992, a year later, after a summer of taking community college classes to get ahead of my peers in terms of credits, because that's what nerds do for their summers off in college, I returned to the university campus in Tucson and headed straight to the university, like a man returning to the arms of a lover he'd been away from for some time. No, still no girlfriend. 
And on the first floor of the library, there was a huge open space where the card catalog had been. It was gone, replaced with a smaller bank of computers that sat nearby. They'd taken the axe to the card catalog, and I would never see one again in my life. The following year, 1993, while Werner Vinge was writing that paper about the singularity, in my class on Geoffrey Chaucer, in which we read the original text in untranslated Middle English, I heard my professor refer to something that he called the E-net. He spoke about how he was communicating with other Chaucer professors at other universities through this electronic mail something or other. I had no idea what he was talking about, and I was interested in a girl at that time, so I didn't bother following up on this new concept. I also still didn't have my own computer. The university had computer labs, though, where you could go and type up your papers and print them out for whatever class you were taking. Long story short, in 1991, I had never used a computer before in my life, not even to type a paper. My family just had a typewriter. In fact, I took a typewriting class in high school in the 80s. By 1998, though, seven years after starting college, I had a computer, dial-up internet access, and an email account. And a wife and two kids, so progress in other areas of life, right? But anyway, by 2007, nine years after that, I would ditch quote-unquote legacy tech like cable TV and telephone landlines and switch my family over entirely to Netflix, the internet, and cell phones, embracing the latest tech advantages as soon as I saw them. By then, in fact, it had already been a few years since I canceled my last newspaper subscription. You see, people used to actually make money by driving around or riding their bikes and tossing a big fat newspaper in your driveway at 5 a.m., Anyway, a few years after that, after adopting Netflix and cell phones, my growing family would also lose the huge TV and the desktop computer in our living room for flat screens and laptops. And now, I make podcasts with an iPhone that probably has more technological capability than all the devices that I've ever owned in my life. And I probably only use a few percentage points of its total potential. And I bank online, invest online, pay my bills online. I do things with this phone in seconds that would have literally, literally taken me days to do in the 1980s. Sometimes I wonder if other members of my generation ever feel like gods because the power that we have acquired in the short span of our lives compared to what we started out with is truly astounding. Now, where am I going with all this? Well, this unit of episodes is about the technological singularity, and one of the critical themes of this topic is the acceleration of technological advancement. Yes, you might be saying you are probably aware of technological advance. Anyone with their eyes open knows this. But you have to understand that this is not about a linear progression. In this unit of episodes about the singularity, I will introduce you to some important modern figures like Ray Kurzweil and Kartik Gatta, among others, who argue that technology does not advance in a linear fashion, simply getting better or faster or more powerful at a fixed rate, but rather that it is advancing at an exponential rate, ever faster and faster. Most important to their theses is that we are nearing a point in this progression where the exponential growth of technological power reaches an inflection point. And the curvature of that growth, that power in technology, begins to zoom almost straight up, like on a graph, on a Cartesian plane, like you might have used in a geometry class in high school or college. In other words, 
These advances in tech are only going to keep coming faster and faster and faster and faster. And the world is going to keep changing. And our culture is going to keep changing at a faster and faster pace. And ultimately, proponents of the singularity tell us the advances, these changes, this growth in power and calculation will take off and essentially become infinite in both their rate of advance and their amplification of power. Now, what would that mean? What would that look like? What would it be like living in a time in which the rate of technological progress is essentially infinite? Someone like Werner Vinge, whom I quoted at the beginning of this episode, Werner Vinge would argue that this period in time, this moment that may be just around the corner for those of us living in 2024, remember, he essentially predicted the inflection point for about 2023, Anyway, this time of infinite progression, Vinge would say, is akin to the center of a black hole, the point of singularity in which all laws of physics break down and human science is simply incapable of understanding what happens there. Just so the technological singularity, when it hits, they tell us, when it finally gets here, everything about our life will be transformed in such a way that we cannot recognize it now. In fact, we cannot even predict it or even attempt to understand it. And there are many ways to interpret this. Some theorists are certain that this means doom for us as human beings, that we will be extinct before then, or that the singularity itself will be the cause of our extinction. Others believe that utopia awaits us, that we will become immortal and all-powerful, and then, perhaps most importantly, we will be utterly satisfied and happy with our existence. Regardless of what you think about these theories, I suppose that any thinking person, educated or not today, understands that there is at least some validity to these ideas. Things really are advancing at an alarming rate. And the advent of chat GPT certainly awakened a lot of us to the imminence of something important about to happen to our civilization, be it for good or bad. And somehow all the drama of our human past, from the hunter-gatherers building monuments to the stars at Stonehenge and Gobekli Tepe, through the Babylonians and the Greeks and the Romans and Charlemagne and the Crusades and the Enlightenment and the wars of the 20th century and the moon landing and the explosive proliferation of communication technology around the globe in the last 20 or 30 years, all of that great story, which I am trying to tell with my humble podcast, that great story will come to a definitive end, for better or worse, when the singularity finally arrives. The roots of the technological singularity, as a concept and as a boogeyman of sorts, really go back much further than Werner Vinge, who is, in fact, a still-living science fiction author. That is to say that the fear of technology is quite old. We know that the Luddites were unemployed laborers who destroyed machines in the 19th century as the Industrial Age in England, in particular, began to drive down wages of skilled labor and unemployment numbers increased as machines replaced men. But at some later point, some of us began to perceive that there was more to this looming specter than just machines that could replace our hands in the factories and in the fields. Technology was not just a lot of machines that could move faster and lift heavier weights. Sometime during the 20th century, people began to understand that machines, 
are capable of replacing our minds as well. Now, in some ways, this was certainly convenient and welcome. Consider the calculator. How many tasks and endeavors became easier because we could carry out the math work with calculators? But sometime last century, it certainly must have occurred to people that our technology was becoming capable of replacing our minds in an even more comprehensive way than the calculator, beyond simply making incredibly complex calculations in a short period of time, capable, perhaps, of thought. After all, the first primitive computers of the 1940s and 50s were already being used to play chess against humans with varying levels of success. But since about 20 years ago, no one, not even the best chess player in the world, can beat a half-decent computer program in chess. In 1968, the famous movie 2001, A Space Odyssey, was released. The antagonist of the film was an advanced computer program called HAL 9000, that appeared to have thoughts to contemplate things, and it had motives of its own and would not accept cancellation of its mission under any circumstances and considered murder of its human companions a perfectly acceptable option. And Isaac Asimov had by then already written stories and novels about the dangers of quote-unquote robots which could outthink and outperform humans. In March of 1993, then, Werner Vinge wrote a remarkable paper about this very concern, and he presented it to a symposium organized by NASA. Vinge was, at that time, a well-known science fiction writer and a teacher of mathematics and computer science at San Diego State University. The title of this paper was The Coming Technological Singularity, and the abstract of this document, written, remember, in 1993, it, it began with a fairly ominous passage. Here it is. Quote, Within 30 years, we will have the technological means to create superhuman intelligence. Shortly after that, the human era will be ended. Unquote. About 30 years, he said. And 29 years later, ChatGPT3 made its splash in the headlines. And Werner Vinge's simple, direct, and portentous statement serves now really as a rallying cry for those concerned about the singularity. First, though, let me describe what we mean here by the singularity. People who speak of the technological singularity are borrowing vocabulary from astrophysics when it speaks about black holes. A black hole is a celestial object which has, which has many times more mass than our sun. It has so much mass, in fact, that gravity has condensed the object down to an incredibly small size and given it extreme density. To make the analogy clear, it's hopefully not necessary for me to get the science exactly right, so bear with me. My specialty was English, after all, not science. Anyway, the point is that astrophysicists believe that black holes, or some interior portion of them, reach a point of such incredible density and gravity that the laws of physics simply stop applying, and we really can't imagine what things are like inside these black holes. This has given science fiction writers all sorts of opportunities to speculate about the possibilities associated with observing or even exploring black holes. For the purpose of our discussion here, when we speak of a technological singularity, we are speaking of a moment in time, not in space, a moment in time when technological advancements come so close together and take such great leaps forward that we can no longer predict the future. Let me try to unpack that as well. 
I think if you were living in the 21st century and you're paying any kind of attention to the progress of technology, you would agree that advancements in tech are appearing much more often now than they were in the last century. Furthermore, if you look back into history, you can see that the rate of technological change was much slower in the past than it has been in the last century. Just think right now, in 2024, that in 1924, a century ago, in most of the world, horses and trains were still the primary form of long-distance transportation for most people, with automobiles only just becoming to be, beginning to become more common, and that was only in the developed world. In 1924, there were no computers, and most people in the world, in fact, lived with no electricity. My own stepfather, born on a farm in Iowa in 1940, did not have electricity until he was 17 years old. And now he has a smartphone, and he pays his bills online. What is more interesting than simply the extreme difference between the technological disparity between the world now and 100 years ago is the fact that the rate of advance was not always that fast. You see, in 1924, things had not changed nearly as much since the year 1824. Let's go back to that world of 1924 for a moment. I'm sure you would agree that someone living in that year, if you had asked them to make a prediction about life in 2024, about now, they would probably have been very wrong. Even if you asked someone that was very intelligent with a solid education in the sciences, they would have been very wrong. Sure, some things they could have guessed at. People in 1924 were already at least talking about the possibility of travel in space, even if we had made virtually no steps in that direction. But it might have been on their mind. They would not, though, even if they were the most educated of the elite people of that time, they most likely would not have predicted the internet, social media, computer chips, medical advances. Sure, they might have hoped that medical treatments had been developed in the world, but they would have been unable to say specifically how medicine had developed by then. For instance, that we would be able to fight nearly all infections with antibiotics. Remember that penicillin would not even be discovered until 1928, and it was discovered basically through an accident. So that entire idea, the antibiotic, would have been unknowable and unimaginable for the man living in 1924. Possibly that man would have imagined hordes of people today still dying from simple infections, as they did in his time. So what am I trying to get at here? Well, imagine now, instead of looking at the difference, the disparities between 1924 and today and 2024, let's go all the way back to 1824. If you had asked a man living in 1824 to imagine the future, an educated man, let's say, who knew as much as educated people knew about the world back then, if you had asked this man living in 1824 to imagine the world of 1924, he probably would have gotten a lot wrong. By 1924, for instance, virtually all the old aristocracies had been knocked off their thrones in Europe, for example. So he, he probably would have had a hard time predicting the political future with a lot of accuracy. And it would have been unlikely for that man to predict the automobile, although he already did have the train in 1824. But the man in 1824 probably would have been more accurate guessing what the world of 1924 would be like than the man in 1924 guessing what our world today would be like, right? Don't you agree that the world of today is different to a greater degree compared to 1924, that there were more changes, especially with regard to technology in the last hundred years, than there were in the hundred years before that? The technological advances are occurring more often and at a faster pace. Go back now with me to 1724. How would a man living then in 1724 have imagined the future a century ahead in 1824? Again, there were some political differences between 1724 and 1824. Democracies were becoming more common by 1824, for instance. 
the man from 1724 probably would not have envisaged the steam engine. But I think that it's easy to imagine that the man in 1724 would have, on the whole, been much more accurate guessing what the world would be like in 1824, especially with regard to the level of technological progress. Much more accurate than someone living 100 years ago and trying to guess about how we live now. And he would have, given the possibility of time travel to the future, this man from 1724, he probably would have found it easy to fit into the world of 1824. My point is, each century is getting exponentially different, and a lot of these differences are technological, or due to technology. If I still haven't convinced you, go all the way back to 1624. Consider a man trying to imagine the world technologically in 1724, a century later. That man would be quite comfortable in the world a century later. He would see very little that surprised him. Even politically, the world did not change that much in that century, from 1624 to 1724, and the technology was still very much the same. Yes, there were some bits of technological process, but progress, but it was a much more subtle process. And the farther back you go, the more obvious it gets. The man living in AD 1000 would have imagined life in the year AD 1100 with very little error. The human situation had not changed very much, at all, if at all, in that time period. The man living in 1900, though, he would have been terribly wrong about the year 2000. And he would have felt terribly out of place if he had gotten in a time machine and traveled to the future and tried to adapt to life in AD 2000. One of the central ideas associated with the technological singularity, then, is that these changes, especially in technology, are arriving at an increasing rate, an exponentially increasing rate. And so we come back again to Werner Vinge's remark with which I open this episode. He said, late in the 20th century, that science fiction writers had begun to notice this difficulty in imagining the future. We are speaking here especially about writers of hard science fiction. Hard science fiction is not like Star Wars, where the author makes little or no attempt to explain the technologies used in the plot. Hard sci-fi likes to relate the tech in the story to technological capabilities that we have today, or at most, he or she extrapolates from theories that are being posited today. So, for example, if I wanted now, in 2024, to write about people starting a lunar colony in the year 2035, let's say, I might imagine them mining ice for fresh water and extracting helium-3 from the lunar regolith for fuel in their fusion reactors. These are both ideas tossed around in science fiction circles and within the realm of possibility, provided that we actually discover cold fusion. However, more and more, Vinge seems to be saying, writers are having trouble looking out much farther than that. Indeed, even 2035 is getting hard to imagine if you know enough about the kinds of tech changes that are already underway. For instance, if you had been trying to write that story just two years ago, the story about the lunar colony in 2035, you might very well have completely left AI out of the story. Not that you didn't think AI was possible, but it may have seemed much farther off, or you might have employed some pseudo-intelligent computer program in the story that was completely unlike what we are imagining possible now. When ChatGBT made its big splash in the news in late 2022, it caught most people, even those in the know, by surprise. Some people can deny this ignorance about the advent of ChatGPT and act like it's not a big deal, but I would ask them to point out wherever they predicted these changes in their own writing. Such examples do not exist. Now, I also don't want to overestimate the capabilities of ChatGPT here. It has shown its weaknesses, even in its latest models. It's, it is no Skynet like in the Terminator movies. It's no HAL 9000 like in Stanley Kubrick's 2001. Not yet, anyway. 
But my point is that anyone writing that same story now, that story about the lunar colony in 2035, if they wanted to be believable to their readers, they would have to add an AI element to the story because we all know now that this technology is going to be integral to our future. If we actually start that colony in 11 years or less, AI will absolutely be an integral part of its functioning. If we have a future, but that's a topic for a later episode. But it's much more than just writers editing their work to start including AI in their sci-fi storylines. You see, any sci-fi writer worth his salt now can see that the changes are coming, that are coming are so numerous, and they're all at the same time that it's becoming incredibly difficult to imagine that lunar colony, even if it's just 11 years away in this imaginary future. Because any writer of sci-fi knows that there are advances in so many other areas that may have manifested in this fictional society by then. Just consider gene editing. Technologies like CRISPR are taking leaps and bounds of progress. In my opinion, it's very likely that gene-edited babies already exist right now somewhere in the world, and that certain wealthy people are probably already getting secret, cutting-edge gene treatments for disease and to ward off the effects of aging. If not, then I think that few doubt that this will be a reality by 2035 in our proposed lunar colony story. So our story in 2035 would have to incorporate something about gene editing in its storyline as well. Maybe there would be super children by then and immortal people who edit out their bad genes and lengthen the telomeres of their chromosomes and so on. But it's still more than that because the advances that are happening simultaneously now are innumerable. New materials are being discovered for building things. New drugs are being discovered. And just 12 years ago in 2012, people died of hepatitis C. Now they take a pill for six months and they're cured. And I mean cured. They don't even have to keep taking the drug. It's like the hep C never happened to them. 20 years ago, AIDS was a deadly killer. Now it's easily treated and people live healthy lives with this disease just by taking a few pills. Who can say what will happen in terms of medicine by 2035? And let's not forget the elephant in the room, the internet. Read any hard, sci hard sci-fi from the 1980s or before, stories in particular that try to imagine, say, the early 21st century, and noticeably lacking in any story is anything like the internet as we know it. Yes, such authors easily imagined improvements of some sort in communications technology for their story plots, but nobody foresaw the internet as we know it now, as we use it now. And what about blockchain? Uh, cryptocurrency, drone technology, cloud computing, the list goes on. An author of hard sci-fi now needs, if he wants his work to be even remotely believable, he needs to incorporate dozens or hundreds of possible technological advances into his writing. It's not enough to, you, to just put a laser pistol in your hero's hand and start writing. And it's only getting worse. That's the point made by those who are now warning us about the coming technological singularity. Men like Ray Kurzweil, Werner Vinge, and Kartik Gata. These changes in technology are both multiplying and occurring more rapidly. That is the essence of the technological singularity argument. At least until our discussion becomes a little more sophisticated, that is its, ess its essence. That technological advance is not just happening more quickly now, in a more widespread fashion, but that it is only going to accelerate from here. This is not just a bump in the road, not just an, an anomaly in the centuries of technological advancement of the human race. This is not something that's going to be over in a few years and things are just going to calm down. No, this is the inevitable result of thousands of years of progress, of innovation. In a future episode, 
I will talk about the inflection point in all this, the moment in time in which technology moves forward so quickly that innovations and advances become at first a yearly, then a monthly, and then a weekly occurrence before we finally reach the singularity, the point in time at which technological progress, which will by then be overseen entirely by artificially intelligent beings, most likely, this technological progress finally begins to occur so quickly that the human mind cannot keep track of it or even attempt to understand it. I need to get to that episode soon, actually, because I firmly believe that while the singularity may still be decades away, the inflection point when things really begin to take off to the point that they begin to upset human society irrevocably, that inflection point may be just around the corner. Actually, we may be in it now. I think it's entirely possible that we have reached that inflection point, that it may have arrived with the release of ChatGPT in 2022. This podcast is available on a lot of platforms. Spotify, iHeartRadio, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, my website, on my host site, podbean.com. And you can also listen on my own website, western-traditions.org. Wherever you listen, please remember to like, share, subscribe, and comment. If you listen on my own website, you can help support my work by purchasing merchandise on the shopping page, or you can simply contribute directly through the PayPal or Patreon options. Until then, I'll see you at the next episode, if there is a next episode.